Hello. I um, wanted to briefly tell you why this uh, topic is near and dear to my heart. Back in when I was a teenager, I was uh, sure that we were going to live in a utopian, communalist, green, crunchy granola future. Uh, this was me back then. And um, then this happened. Uh, <coughs> And my opinion, this was my first year in college uh, when this happened, and my opinion suddenly changed to uh, this as my future. <laughs> um, and I decided to study sociology because I <coughs> thought, well, I still want to have a communal future. And after the Holocaust um, that this administration is going to bring, we're going to have to all live in rural survivalist communities, and I know that some of them don't survive. So if I study sociology, I might figure out how to design or choose the ideal uh, utopian community to live in. And in fact, there's a book out about that called Commitment Community by Rosabeth Moss Cantor, where she analyzes 19th century communes for their continuity. And that book turned me on to sociology, and, I, and that was the end of that. Um, I went on to study Pentecostalism and a number of other things that have contributed to my current obsession with this topic. But um, the argument that I want to briefly outline for you <coughs> is that throughout cultures around the world for the last couple thousand years, we can see the recurrence of a pan-cultural dynamic or syndrome of things that, that happen when people start to think about the ultimate ends of our species, um, when they start to think about eschatology, what the ultimate end of things might be, how things might turn out. Uh, whether there are going to be enormous apocalypses, whether there are going to be uh, utopias in our future. And that the susceptibility uh, to these kinds of the syndrome of millennial thinking differs by person to person and the way that it, it affects people differs by person to person, whether they're more apocalyptic or more utopian. And it differs by time and place in terms of what's happening in a society at any one time. So I'm not arguing that this is present in everyone and in all times, but I'm present. It is a kind of uh, uh, an archetype that's um, that is present in our culture and in other cultures, and that uh, shapes the way many people think about these topics. Um, I want to, in particular, say that secular policymakers and secular philosophers tend to underestimate the pervasive influence of these archetypes, these this, this um, millennialist thinking and religious thinking because they just don't know very many people who think that way. Um, if you happen to live in a secular community, especially with the growing uh, segregation of cultural types in the United States nowadays, if you happen to live in a secular community, you tend not to meet anybody who thinks that way. And if you live in a religious community, you tend not to meet anybody who thinks in a secular way. Um, but they have a pervasive influence. But they also have a pervasive influence on the way that even us secular, rational, sober uh, futurists think about things. And um, I'm a little bit more in touch with my inner utopian and apocalyptic, I guess, than, than some. But I would argue that I think many people who think that they're completely immune to this kind of uh, thinking should do a little bit more self-investigation. So I want to briefly outline what some of the uh, millennialist types have been in history. And this is uh, largely drawn from Christian history, but um, there are strong parallels to Buddhist uh, history, to um, uh, Islamic uh, eschatology, um, other kinds of eschatology that you can find in other places and times. And the ways that these eschatological types differ are basically about uh, opinions about the role of human agency in human history, 
and uh, opinions about the timing of when the good and the bad things are going to happen. So the most common uh, kind of eschatological thinking in the West has been influenced by uh, what we call premillenarianism, and it has roots going back to um, thousands of years ago, but uh, the most recent upsurge and kind of codification of premillennial thinking in Christianity was uh, William, uh, codified by William Miller about 150 years ago. And he, uh, his uh, teachings gave rise to the Seventh-day Adventists and some other sects, um, but have become popularized in the most recent 30 or 40 years by books like The Late Great Planet Earth that looked at events such as the foundation of the State of Israel, um, the creation of the European Union, um, other world events that seem to fit into the eschatological timeline that uh, they were reading into the book of Revelations. And so there are many, many uh, evangelical Christians in Latin America, the United States, even in Europe, secular Europe, um, who have bought into what we call this premillennial um, frame of mind, and I'll show you some statistics on that in a second. Part of that frame of mind is the notion that things are going to get really bad, and as they're getting bad, at some point, um, all the good folks, the, the saved Christians, are going to be taken up into heaven. Everyone's just, all the good Christians will just suddenly disappear out of their clothes. Um, they may be taken, in fact, physically naked up into heaven. Um, and so you see all these naked Christians just flying up into heaven. Um, and that's called the rapture. And the rapture, um, I have a bumper sticker that says, when the rapture comes, can I have your car? Um, so the, the rapture comes back to us in when we talk about our technological expectations because a lot of people see rapture in some of the things that we're talking about. Okay, another type of millennial thinking, what we call amillennialism. Now the Christian, the early Christian church didn't like the notion that um, that the millennium was coming and that, uh, that all of these revolutionaries could come around and say, I'm John the Baptist of the coming millennium and I'm going to establish a new social order. And so um, one of the early Christian doctrines, it's not, it's not really the, Christian, the, the doctrine of the Catholic Church as I understand it today, which is uh, basically benign and um, hostile to any discussion of the millennium. But uh, one of the early Christian doctrines was that the millennium had already happened in the establishment of the church. And that what has to happen now is that the, the bad, the, the tribulations in our society have to be conquered by the further establishment of the millennium through the church. And you can see this kind of logic, for instance, in um, the establishment of the Comintern and, and uh, communism in, from 1920s on, the notion that the millennium had occurred in Russia and that what we needed to do was spread that to all the people around the world um, and establish it everywhere. That's why I have a Russian on my picture here. Another approach to the millennium has been post-millennialism, and this is, uh, has been influential at different times. It's very uh, uncommon kind of millennialism nowadays. But this is the notion that specific human actions are required, uh, in particular the building of the kingdom of heaven on earth, um, is required in order to create the conditions for the millennium to occur. And for, for second coming of Christ, you have to build the kingdom of heaven first. So although there may be tribulations, um, the tribulations are overcome by the, the body of Christ, the church, building the kingdom, and then Christ will return. Now, this is very influential in a brand of progressive Christianity in the United States called the social gospel up through World War II. And it's very influential in certain circles in the Christian right today in what's called dominionist theology, which this bottom uh, poster kind of reflects the logic of anti-God is anti-American, anti-American is treason, traitors lead to civil war. 
Uh, Dominionists have argued, for instance, for the death penalty for abortionists, for gay people, et cetera, et cetera, in order to establish the kingdom, in order to bring back Christ. Um, you can see a version of this also in Buddhist eschatology. Um, Buddhists believe that the second coming of Maitreya, which is the next Buddha, uh, will be precipitated by the creation of a global utopian paradise uh, in which the state will abdicate itself to the Buddha, the coming Buddha. So the withering of the state of a utopian state to the coming Buddha. Now another approach to the role of human agency in messianic thinking is that one person, one movement, or one action, one particular kind of effect is required in order to turn the apocalypse. So postmillennialism is a version of messianism, but it's a collective messianism, a collective action of Christ. Uh, to, to bring about the second coming of Christ. Um, but the more common is that a particular John the Baptist has to come and prepare the way. A particular uh, ritual has to be performed in order to prepare the way for the coming millennium. Now, a point I want to make about this is that I think that from a kind of social, cultural, evolutionary, and psychological evolutionary point of view, it's very clear that optimism is more adaptive than pessimism. Uh, optimism leads to some Judgment errors on the part of individuals, they tend to underestimate risks and so forth. But um, in general, people who are optimistic about their affairs take, uh, tend to do better than those who are too pessimistic about their affairs. And in general, you can imagine that um, religious teleologies that suggested to people that things were going to be better in the future were a heck of a lot more popular and more motivating and uh, you know, more sustainable uh, culturally than those that argued that things were going to be terrible in the future and that we were all going to die and it was going to be awful. Um, and even the one that we tend to think of as the most negative of all of our religious eschatologies, which is Ragnarok, the Norse uh, eschatology, which ends in a future battle between the gods and the titans that, w that they know is going to happen. They know exactly who's going to die. They know exactly which of the gods is going to uh, not survive it. Even that one turns out to be a utopian eschatology at the end because uh, Leif and Lifrasir uh, survive and build a utopian Midgard after this um, with a couple surviving gods. Okay, so what relevance does it have to the discussion that we're having? Um, I want to argue that both in the way that we communicate these messages and the, the popular perception that they have, and in the way that we, we think about these things, that there are kind of four characteristic millennialist biases that creep in and can be uh, seen in the way that people behave around these, um, these questions of ultimate ends, of, of ultimate eschatology of the human race. And again, I'll say this again, um, I'm not arguing that uh, any particular calculation or prediction is in fact a representative of any of these. I'll, I'll make this point several times, but you know, it may in fact be that if you're very optimistic, you have extremely good reasons to be optimistic. So all I'm arguing for here is the self-interrogation, that if you find yourself being extremely optimistic, that you interrogate yourself critically to see if in fact you may be subject to some of these biases. Um, quickly, some of the ways that they've played out in, in recently in contemporary ways. So this is a, a secular um, person, H.G. Wells. He, in his writings had a strong expectation that was reflected in the film and book, uh, Things to Come, that there would be a world war um, and that that world war would lead to a global government. So he thought that eventually we would end up with a relatively utopian socialist global government, although some of his novels are very dystopian, but um, he had a general expectation apparently that this would happen, but it would require first a global war. And you see this kind of common trope appearing often in 
uh, especially after World War II, apocalyptic fiction, um, thinking about what might happen if there was a global war, that perhaps then we would learn the lesson, we would uh, you know, establish a better society afterwards. Star Trek, if you re rewind Star Trek a couple centuries, it turns out there's a global war in our past, and that's why we have a united socialist, cashless you know, society with replicators in the, our future, is because we were able to learn the lessons of that global war and establish that utopian paradise. Thinking about some of the ways that it plays out in geopolitics, that communist inevitabilism, as I said, Marxism uh, in, in, di in its different guises uh, reflects a number of different kinds of uh, millennial thinking, but the notion that there would be an inevitable victory of, uh, of a socialist planet um, was on the one side of the Cold War, and on the other side, uh, continuing to be very strong today, um, there's always been a base for uh, a strong anti-communist movement in the United States and those who believed that fighting communism was a part of the eschatological duty of the United States, that the United States was founded as a, uh, uh, as a bulwark against evil in the world, that we had a special mission, we were a city on the hill, et cetera, et cetera. Ronald Reagan was apparently the, the first president to be uh, in office who belonged to a church that believed explicitly in the imminent return of Christ, um, which, you know, since he had his finger on the button was a little troubling. Um, and in recent years, the Left Behind books have become extremely popular, which have popularized the premillennial uh, doctrines um, to many, many people. Again, in popular culture, you can see uh, another strain of apocalyptic thinking, that is the apocalyptic endings where we don't turn out so well, where, uh, and this is the beginnings. I think, for me, the notion that suddenly in secular culture you begin to see apocalypses um, becoming popular where we don't end up well um, is, a, is a, a unique turning point in history because I don't see too many of those in our past. They may just not have survived. But um, the notion uh, that, in, for instance, in On the Beach, classically, you know, the entire planet is going to die, and it's a love story uh, before, we, before we all die. Planet of the Apes, we get replaced. Uh, Mad Max, we kind of survive, but it's not a very attractive survival. Uh, Matrix, we kind of survive, but it's not a very attractive survival. Um, so there are lots of uh, examples in popular culture of the, ima the apocalyptic imagination going to that place, going to the place of the end of civilization. Uh, recently in Y2K, I confess I considered buying a generator for Y2K. You know, I'm a sociologist, I'm not a computer scientist. Um, but uh, there are many, many people, computer scientists among them, um, who were very anxious about what was going to happen in Y2K. There was a strong revival of survivalism, at least in, in my benighted country, um, and uh, both among religious and secular people. Who ex and many p secular people, many ecologists, arguing Y2K would be the opportunity for us to establish our new neo-pastoral society because all the, everything was going to collapse once the computers turned over, and therefore we would have this new opening and opportunity. More recently, the uh, millennial attentions have uh, focused, this is a redrawn map of uh, the Middle East, if you don't recognize it, um, and this is the Golden Dome, which is, of course, the uh, center for apocalyptic expectations of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. You see, after the end of the Cold War, uh, Francis Fukuyama says, now it's the end of history. It's democratic, uh, liberal capitalist triumphalism, uh, everyone will now agree, the world will be united around uh, liberal capitalism, hooray. Um, of course, he changed his mind when he discovered about transhumanism and human enhancement, and then he said, well, maybe not. But um, at any rate, at that point, he was triumphalist. And the neocons started to argue, well, all we have to do 
is uh, democratize one or two countries in the Middle East, and then the whole thing, it'll be like a domino effect. The whole thing, everyone will see that this is the future. And so let's just send a couple Marines into Iraq, and uh, you know, well, they'll be, petals will be strewn at their feet, and it'll all turn out fine. Um, and in the United States, you have uh, now a strong group among evangelicals of Christian Zionism, those who believe, in, in the book of Revelations, it says there only has to be 144,000 Jews left at that time. So I'm not quite so sure why Jews are so excited that, that there's Christian Zionism, because that's still a whole lot of Jews that could be killed before the end of time. But um, the Christian Zionists argue that the United States has a religious obligation to support the state of Israel because it plays a role in these eschatological expectations. And then on the Islamic side, you find that Al-Qaeda and um, many of our Islamist uh, foes um, also are motivated by eschatological uh, beliefs about the, the coming Mahdi. Uh, they actually believe that Jesus will return also, uh, something that most Christian uh, fundamentalists aren't so sure of. I mean, the Jews don't think Jesus is coming back. He didn't ever come in the first place. The Muslims actually believe Jesus is coming back and that he's going to play a role in the end time. So you would think that Christians would be more sympathetic with the Muslims than with the Zionists, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so uh, the Islamic eschatology on the other side in this role. Okay, some facts. 79% of Americans believe Christ will return to earth someday. That's almost all Christians in the United States. Apparently some non-Christians as well. Um, <laughs> Uh, 59% of the events in the Bible's book of Revelation will occur in the future. 59% of Americans believe that. 40% believe the physical world will eventually end someday as a result of some type of supernatural inter intervention. 36% believe the state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy about the second coming of Christ. You thought when I was talking about this, I was talking about like a couple people, right? <laughs> right, this is a third to a half to 80% of my country, okay? I know, it's, I know Europe is far more enlightened than this, but... Okay, just extrapolate it to Latin America and Africa and other places where people might believe such things. 26% um, of the U.S., that is 33% of Christians, say the specific timing of Christ's return to earth is revealed in biblical prophecy and that the second coming will occur after the world situation worsens and reaches a low point, some kind of low point. Half of U.S. Christians, that is almost half of uh, Americans, say that human actions cannot affect the timing of Christ's return. So that gets to that premillennial, postmillennial question uh, and fatalism. And although one quarter say that they can, so there, there are some people who say that they can, although only 4% of U.S. Christians say that uh, human action can actually precipitate the return of Christ. So only 4% are postmillennial. 33% of evangelicals, therefore, believe that global warming is not, I'm sorry, this should say it's not, they believe, uh, no, is. 33% of evangelicals say that global warming is a major problem, that is, most don't, uh, compared to 69% of atheists. So there's an enormous gap on certain, the analysis of certain social problems between evangelicals and others. Now, that leads me into eco-catastrophism, another version of this. I happen to believe in climate change. I happen to believe in global warming, so I'm not arguing that this is, in fact, millennial thinking. But there's undoubtedly, unquestionably, a whole lot of people around the world who believe, who exhibit uh, millennial tendencies around the questions of climate change, who uh, focus on that to the exclusion of other catastrophic risks and other social problems, who focus on that as a precipitating agent for the kinds of utopian social changes that they think might be enabled by it, 
and, um, and conversely, there's a lot of, de uh, as a consequence of that, there's a lot of debate around it. End of oil is another variant of this argument. People who think that, the, that we reach peak oil and that the end of oil will precipitate a social collapse and so on and so forth. And this movie by um, Shyamalan uh, happening is another example of the kind of popular imagination around our being punished for our ecological hubris by the planet, you know, this kind of Gaian version of apocalypticism. Now, that leads me up to the singularity. I, again, I am not arguing that the singularity is purely millennial hype. However, uh, if you follow singularitarians and singularitarianism the way that I do, you will find occasionally uh, people who exhibit some millennial tendencies around their thinking around these kinds of things. That is, people who believe that the acceleration tr accelerating trends in technology, the advent of greater than human intelligence and other kinds of trends, uh, may lead to a point where everything goes kablooey and it's impossible to predict what happens after that, you say to them, well, what's the likelihood that, say to some of them, for instance, what's the likelihood that we might all be wiped out by this? Oh, it's a pretty good possibility. Well, then why are you optimistic about it? Uh, oh, well, no, I think we'll figure out something. <laughs> it seems like there's some doublethink involved, and it's a characteristic doublethink that you see in the history of millennial thought. Okay, there's the possibility of apocalypse, but I have some eschatological certainty, nonetheless, that we'll get past that and we'll end up in a really good place. I, I think that that's a problem. And I think it's even more of a problem that if you get out of the circle of people who are reasonably you know, scientific and secular who are trying to argue about these things, and you get one step out of that circle, you get into a popular culture where these ideas, where Kurzweil and other kinds of ideas are being appropriated and mixed with the, ex the pre-existing pan-cultural millennial beliefs. And here's an example, uh, BritGillette.com, a Christian examination of Bible prophecy and emerging technology. You see that the categories here are Bible prophecy, molecular manufacturing, and the singularity. <laughs> uh, and this article, The Singularity and the Second Coming, and it compares teachings of Kurzweil against passages from the Bible and tries to figure out how they relate to each other. Uh, also, one of my favorite news feeds is Raiders News uh, Update. I, I highly recommend it. They report on all the news that I'm interested in about emerging technologies, human enhancement, um, uh, geopolitical things that are happening from the perspective that everybody who wants human enhancement is, a, is an agent of Satan. Um, that we're trying to build the Nephilim, which are human-angel uh, hybrids to serve Satan in the end times. Uh, DARPA is a part of this project. The Hate Bush because Bush, of course, is a part of the conspiracy. Uh, so, you know, I read Reader's News Update, and as long as I can ignore their lurid headlines, I can get into some really articles that I really love. So it's, you know, it's like the converse of my perspective. And another phenomenon, I think, is the techno-messianism that can come out of this perspective, both on the part of those who want to stop that future, this future that we're talking about, and those who want to bring it about. I've had, I had that picture uh, on our fridge after T2 came out, Terminator 2, uh, for about th three or four years. Um, probably not because I was thinking about these topics all that time. But um, uh, at any rate, this is a, a Sarah Connor. I, I'm sure at some point there's going to be the Sarah Connor brigades founded and people who, whose job th they see it to be to blow up every computer scientist who's trying to build superhuman intelligence. Uh, there already has been the Unabomber. And in fact, that was part of his mission. If you read the Unabomber Manifesto, he was absolutely certain that um, technological trends would lead to the supersession of humanity or the, some kind of apocalyptic end for humanity. And the, the only way to stop that was to start blowing people up. So I, 
part of the dynamic, the history of millennial thinking, millennial tendencies, is that it leads to millenarian violence. It, me it leads to people saying, if the question is, this continues, this particular thing continues, or the future of the human race, there is no question to me that I have to shoot this person, I have to execute this group, I have to blow up this building. There is a clear rationale. If, in fact, you think that only that thing leads to this particular good or bad end. Now, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as Sigmund Freud famously said, and I'll say this once again. I am not arguing that any particular expectation, except for the religious ones, we can throw those out the window, but I'm not arguing any <laughs> secular expectation, any religious expectation, is by itself, uh, could be labeled as millennial, utopian, overly pessimistic, overly whatever. But I want us to interrogate them for whether they could be overly rosy, overly bleak, beyond, uh, unnecessarily portrayed as beyond human agency, or unnecessarily portrayed as focused on one particular kind of agency. So some of the symptoms of <coughs> millennial thinking from this point of view. Over-pessimism, over-optimism. I've already talked about that. For me, when I, I try to take seriously some of the arguments about, I, I'm a sociologist, I don't have good maths, so you know, I, I, the most I have is statistics. Um, and, but still, when I try to take seriously some of the arguments about what the likelihood is of you know, us blowing ourselves up in a X way or Y way, there seem to be so many unknowns in the equation that for me, it's more a reflection, it's more a, a case of, pe of people's psychologies working out, of sociological dynamics working out, than it is of actual quantitative calculation. Now, I'm not disparaging any particular physicist or philosopher who, try, who attempts this, and I think some of them have gotten pretty far. But I think that there's a strong dynamic, a, th a strong dynamic of psychological expectation at work, and I think we have to continuously interrogate ourselves about that. I think there's a strong dynamic in millennial thinking of dismissing the value of collective agency. So you say to people who are singularitarians, uh, well, you think that we might end up crushed by the Terminator robot god. Um, what might we do about that? Could we, in fact, create a series of public policies, some regulatory agencies, some prophylactic you know, other measures collectively at the UN level? There are international laws governing the, co uh, the regulation of supercomputers and other things. There are federal agencies who are con concerned about cybercrime, cybersecurity. Why don't we start talking to those people about these kinds of problems? Why don't we start preparing their mind for the notion that artificial life and artificial minds might be, pose this kind of threat? And they say, Government? The government doesn't understand anything about artificial intelligence. What could government do? It could only do something ham-handed. Well, it's perfectly true that it could do something ham-handed. But this initial reaction of government sounds to me like the same kind of reaction you get when you talk to a Jehovah's Witness. You say, okay, it's a Jehovah's Witness, you know, what do you think about going to talk to the government about uh, trying to ban pornography? They say, oh, no, the government's controlled by Satan. You know, can't talk to the government, the government can do nothing. <laughs> Not that I prefer the dominionists <laughs> or the Christian right who think the government can do something, but um, the, this uh, dismissal of the notion of public policy of collective democratic agency, I think is one symptom of that kind of thinking. And another symptom that you see um, with some frequency is a dynamic of sectarianism, a dynamic of insularity. Now, I don't think that you can completely avoid this. If you think about ultimate ends, if you're concerned, as so very, very few people are, about non-religious discussion of the ends of humanity and what might wipe us out, what might make our future radically better, there is going to be 
you know, you're, when you talk to somebody else who likes to talk about those things, you're going to feel really warm about it. And when you find that people don't care at all about the future of humanity, you're going to feel really sad about that. And when you get attacked for a be as being absurd for even wanting to talk about these topics, you're going to get mad about that. So I'm not dismissing the notion that it's an inevitability that people will form bonds and have social dynamics. But what can happen is that people become insular and that they begin to have internal group speak. And you see this in religious communities and you see it in secular communities. And, you, and a kind of group think develops. And that group think uh, builds unnecessary lines between people. So again, this is one, if you see this happening, I, I suggest it's one of those kinds of markers for self-interrogation, that you might be limiting your discursive possibilities. So my ultimate recommendation <coughs> around this is that uh, not that we need to wall ourselves off from the possibility of our being appropriated. In fact, it is obligatory that people who take existential risks seriously need to engage in public democratic discourse, need to engage with not only uh, policymakers at the highest levels, but, the, but everyone around these questions in order to uh, create the support for Space Guard, in order to create the support for uh, regulatory uh, responses, in order to create support for space exploration, or whatever the different uh, X-risk policies are that you want to support, they need to be based in popular support. And it's not as if talking to policymakers would be, those people would be immune to these things either, as I pointed out, uh, at the presidential level in the United States, the, these uh, influences reach. So we need to be cognizant of how they're going to be appropriated, how these uh, discussions may um, be turned in ways that we didn't expect. Um, and at the same time, uh, think about ways that we could use that energy. You know, the fact that uh, cl climate change, because I believe in climate change, I'm not entirely unhappy that there are people who uh, have a kind of millennialist energy about fighting climate change, who, who get up every morning and think, I have, what I have to do today is fight climate change. I'm a climate change warrior. I'm trying to save the planet. I'm trying to save every living thing on this planet. Those people perform a very useful social function, in my view. Unfortunately, there are other people who have millennialist views who, who think entirely bad things that I don't like at all. But you know, the, that energy, that dynamic will take place. There will be people who get up every day and think, the only thing that one should be concerned about is asteroids. I have to fight asteroids. I have to do what I can for Space Guard. Those aren't necessarily bad people. We have to work with those communities. So I think there are ways that we can be sociologically and politically and tactically sophisticated as a, as a meta X-risk community and, and still avoid some of these errors and navigate that terrain <coughs> to use these energies in a positive way. So thanks very much.